Let's continue standing for the reading of God's word. We're reading from Hebrews 9, 1 through 5. That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. And then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room, called the most holy place. And in that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the ark was a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that had sprouted leaves, and a stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory whose wings stretched over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things here in detail now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. Thanks, Megan. My guess is, unless you grew up in a Christian school or... um, went to Awanas or any of that, you probably have no idea what Megan was reading um, and what she's describing, and that's okay. That was me for half my life, um, well, more than half, if I'm going to be straight. Um, it's a room, and what is it, and what does it have to do? That is not in Exodus. It's in Hebrews in the New Testament, and my hope this morning would be that uh, when we are done, we're going to revisit that text when we're done with our text, and then from there, um, my hope would be that you know exactly what that's talking about, and then we're going to read after it uh, and get a full kind of encompassing power as to why um, a New Testament author would describe a room uh, the way that, that uh, he did there um, that has to do with the Old Testament, okay? So I'm going to pray for our time. I will catch us up if you um, don't know why we read that text or where we are and all that, uh, but let me pray first. Uh, over this. Father, thank you uh, just for the, the book of Exodus. Thanks for chapters 25 through 31. Um, it's monotonous. It's a lot of details that pretty much all of us in this room aren't really interested in, um, and, and it can be confusing. So I, I pray that uh, you would help us uh, get there. You would grow our faith uh, in this time, uh, that we would know and love you more. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't been with us, uh, well, first of all, my name's Sean, if you're new. Nice to meet you. Um, uh, if you haven't been with us, we're in Exodus, and we've been going through, we're going we're gonna to finish today, uh, next week, and the week after. So these three weeks are kind of the, the, uh, the end game there, what we're going to finish it all out. And, and here's where we've been, if you haven't been with us, is we started with this kind of epic battle between Pharaoh and God, and ultimately God having the upper hand and Pharaoh not standing a chance. Um, Pharaoh continuing to refuse to let God's people go till, uh, as they're in slavery. God fighting, using these women on behalf uh, of, of Israel to continue to fight for, uh, and then Moses to fight for the, the people of Israel, uh, setting them free from slavery by crazy, crazy miraculous encounters, uh, ends up setting them, setting them free. They're in the desert. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They need protection. God provides all of that. Finally, God meets uh, with his people. Uh, if you were here at that time, John preached that in uh, Exodus 19 and 20, meets with his people. And what we encounter is this crazy blazing fire, lightning, thunder, smoke. And then God gives the commands, which we talked through the commandments of God, five chapters last week. And then today we're going to talk about the tabernacle. So if you were like, woke up today, you're like, I just, I don't know how to build the tabernacle. I need to figure this out. It's perfect. It's perfect. Cause today's, we're going to cover that. Um, and so here's, here's why all, all this kind of lays out. When we begin to talk through these six chapters, I get it. And I said this, this last week, uh, you know, last week, 
this is the time when you got that Bible reading plan where if let's just all call it what it is, be everything but a liar. The reality is you probably ain't reading these chapters or you might start it. And you go and eh, skim to the end or skim to this point. You, if I asked you how many feet the tabernacle needs to be wide, you're probably not memorizing Exodus 26, anything. Okay. And that's okay. Uh, but it is worth talking through and it is worth taking a Sunday to do for a few different reasons. Number one, um, when a text like Megan came up and read in Hebrews nine, it's really important that we understand as we get to our New Testament, there's no understanding our New Testament without passages like this. Now, it's hard to understand. There's no doubt about it. But being a good Bible student would say, I don't want a shallow faith. And I'm not saying this tongue in cheek, but the reality is let let Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, um, let other faiths, let their faith be shallow to them and them not their faith. Not us. Let Christians, let us dig deep. Let us know why. Let us know how. Let us know where. Let us uh, be wise in understanding the names of when they're placed and how it's placed. And, and maybe we don't have to memorize the exact dimensions of the tabernacle, but we understand why God has given it to us. So there's the first reason, I think, why we should study the tabernacle. The second reason is, if you ever pick up your Bible and you go through Genesis, and in Genesis chapter 1, there's this moment where God creates all of the galaxies, Now, I don't know if any of you know the science behind all the galaxies. To our best estimate, we only use terms like billions and trillions because we don't actually know how many. But let's just use those terms. There are billions upon billions upon billions of galaxies out there. We have no idea, but just billions of galaxies out there. And in each one of those galaxies, there are billions upon billions of stars in each one of those galaxies. Okay? When we get to the point where God creates billions upon billions of galaxies and billions of stars in those galaxies, this is what Genesis 1.16 says. He made the stars also. That's it. That's all he gives us. Okay? And yet, we have 50 chapters of the Bible. Five words devoted, devoted to trillions of stars in the universe. But five chapter, five verse, uh, words there, but 50 chapters devoted to how to build a tabernacle. So that tells us something God really wants us to know about this building. Why is this important? What's it about? And there are two ways we can understand this. One, we can look back to see the importance, which we're going to do in two weeks. Or today, we can look forward to see the importance. Okay? And so both those things are going to be intention for us. If you were with us last week, uh, what took place was... Uh, Moses went up onto this mountain as the people are going in the wilderness. And all it said is he went up into the mountain, disappears into the smoke. And we're like, and, and then what? Right? Okay. We have no idea what's going to happen there. We have no, and now we get the words that God speaks to Moses in that exact moment. Okay. So with that, let's study the tabernacle. All right. Um, if you already haven't opened your Bible, you can open up to Exodus chapter 25. This is what, while Moses is up on the mountain, this is what God says to him. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. For every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Let me just stop real quick there. Um, This is just a side note. You can have this one for free. I I read this one, I read this text as I do all of our texts as we go through it and meditate on it first. Before I ever want to think about teaching it, just like, what are you seeing? And this verse here in verse 2, I just had to stop and I thought, I really love our God. Like, let people say what they want about him. They don't know him like we know him. I'll speak for myself. Like, he's so good. And he takes so much crap from people. And he's so amazing. And the reality is, he could easily 
kill any of us in this room and just magically transfer all the money in your bank account to his bank account. He could do that right now, but he doesn't. You know what it says? From every man whose heart moves him. He desires to intimately work with you in the contributions that he's gathering. He could, he, he, he doesn't, he doesn't have, like, he could just like, and you're gone and all of your money's his. He could, absolutely. But he choose, in a, I mean, I just, I read that and I went, dude, you are so good. You're so good. Maybe I shouldn't call him dude, but he's really good. Um, so with that in mind, that is nothing, but I just read that and I was blown away. So he's talking about gathering contribution. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskin, goat skin, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices uh, uh, for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplates. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. So you shall make it. So Moses is up on the mountain. God begins to take uh, talk with him. And in a nutshell, let me just tell you what I think he's saying here. I want you to get all the material together because we're going to get to work. Okay. Right now, the curse of the world we live in right now is nobody ever goes to Home Depot once you go to Home Depot, get it. And you have to go back because you forgot something ridiculous, like one PVC pipe fitting this weekend, just one, it was 43 cents. And I had to go all the way back. I spent more in gas to go back to, but this is God's clear. He's clear here. And he's going, here's exactly what I want. I want you to gather these materials. I want acacia wood. I want gold. I want silver. I want bronze. I want this type of uh, uh, linen. I want these, these twines twisted together, all this stuff. I want it all put together. He lays out all of the material. Okay. And he says, because here's the deal. I want to be with you. And what we found in Exodus chapter 19 is he is so holy, so powerful, so immense that the people of God, if they stare at him directly or even touch the mountain he's on, they'll die. He's just too holy, but God wants to be with his people. And so he gives us in Exodus alone, 13 chapters in which God wants to be with his people and exactly how to do it. So from there, um, it is best for two and a half chapters, I think, uh, to help us get our mind around what we're going to be covering here. I want you to see, um, starting in chapter five, verse 10. I'm going to read the the first part of verses, and then from there, it explains the details of how to make that thing. So, for example, I would say, okay, I want a brick wall. Details of how to make the brick wall. I want these chairs. Details of how to make the chairs. I want this stage. Details of how to make the stage. What we're going to do is we're going to cover all this stuff in the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself, and the things around the tabernacle. I'm not going to explain the details. I'm just going to read the first part. And if you're interested in making a mercy seat yourself, the the blueprints are in here, okay? Chapter 25, verse 10 says this. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Gives the details. 25.17 says you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Gives the details on how to make it. 25.23, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Details on how to make it. 25.31 says you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. Details on how to do it. 26.1, moreover, you shall make the tabernacle. So now make a place to put all these things. Gives us details on how to make the tabernacle. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair. Make a tent uh, over the tabernacle. Gives us details on how to do that. 26.11, you shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps in the... Uh, into the, the loops and couple the tent together that they may be a single, may be a single hole. Gives us details on how to do that. 2615, you shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Details. 2626, you shall make bar, uh, bars of acacia wood, five for the frames and one inside of the tabernacle. Gives us details on how to do that. 2631, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns of fine twisted linen. 
Gives us details on how to do that. 2636, you shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent. Gives us details on how to do that. Chapter 27, verse 1, you shall make an altar of acacia wood. Gives us details for that. 27.9, you shall make the court of the tabernacle. Gives us details on that. We just read two and a half chapters of the Bible. Congratulations, okay? So, so here, here's all the details and all this stuff all mixed in. It's a lot there. Um, at this point, God then says, specifically, I want you to take this one thing that I'm going to tell you to make called this altar of incense. I want you to put it inside the tabernacle, and I want it to be burning these incense all the time. Never go out. And, and what he begins to do is he begins to put priests in place to tend to this tabernacle. Okay, so that's a lot. And so I'm not very good at using videos. I think John is way better at that, um, uh, to kind of using illustrative ways like this. But the reality is we have an advantage that our brothers and sisters in the faith just didn't have 200 years ago. Um, We have visual theology used uh, through technology that can provide us... um, video to look at. And so uh, there was a Kickstarter a couple years ago that did a 3D rendering uh, to walk us through exactly what the tabernacle looked like. FYI, if you ever want to look up anything on the tabernacle, Mormons have got like a monopoly on this thing, right? So you like, like Mormons have like probably 10 different type of 3D renderings of the tabernacle. They will show you what priests look like. They've made actual tabernacles. I mean, it's great. And I don't mean like the Mormon tabernacles. I mean like a reenactment of this. And they're accurate, but don't worry. This is not Mormonism. We're not sneaking it in, okay? This is legit Christians, although it's pretty much the same. I just don't trust the other side, um, okay? So, so let me pause it real quick right there. Stop right there. No, Steve, relax. Steve, what do you just breathe? Okay, um, okay so I had a laser pointer, but it's on my kitchen counter somewhere in my kid's room. I don't know where it is. So we're going to just, I'm going to ask you, uh, ask you to trust me on a, a lot of this stuff. So uh, Steve has it there. Leave it there for a second. Okay. So let's go through this. I'm going to pause this thing probably 10 or 12 different times. So you can see everything that was just described in two and a half chapters of Exodus. I'm going to point to you and say, this is what that was talking about. This is what that's talking about. And then again, if you want the blueprints yourself, it's, it's there in Exodus. The first thing I want you to notice is no matter what we have, where this tabernacle is, it's always in the middle of the camp. Remember, we're talking over a million people in a desert who are moving around. It would take 800 men who are assigned to to break down this wall, this outer wall there, break down this whole tabernacle and move it wherever the spirit of God would go. That's where the people of Israel would go as they wander through the desert. Everything is in tent form and the people of God have to be separated from this tabernacle, except notice this little nest here of tents. That's where the priests would stay. Okay. So go ahead and play it, Steve. So as we get closer, Pause it right there, Steve. That's good. We're not going to get far at all. Um, the first thing I want you to notice, though, before we show, I'm going to show you one of the priest tents here in a second. But um, the outside, see that white wall there, okay? This is all fabric. It's all fabric. On the inside of that wall is what we call the outer courts. Now, they're going to use this tent-style uh, worship for 500 years. That's what the people of Israel are going to do. Eventually, what's going to happen is this guy Solomon comes around, and he ends up building a permanent temple, and it's pretty much identical. There's a quite a few differences, but if you were to look at it, it, it symbolizes or, or uh, uh, parallels this a, a lot. So anyway, so this is the tabernacle. Go ahead, Steve. So as you zoom in, you can kind of get closer. We'll go in there in a second. Before we do, one of those tents, this would be what the priest would stay in or an Israelite would stay in. This is their tent compared to the very large tent of the gods, uh, our God. So stop right there. Okay. Um, as you enter into, as you look to go into, uh, the tabernacle, first and foremost, you have to understand if you are not a priest, you're not getting into the tabernacle itself. Okay. There are certain things that you can do on the outer courts that you can come in if you're a regular Israelite. But one thing you have to understand is it's all one piece of fabric all the way around, except 
only on the east side. It always had to be on the east side. There is this sliding fabric that would go. This is where we get these clasps. So behind the tabernacles to the west, due west. Excuse me, due west. So then that's how they get into it. can only enter into this way. And you can even see that first pole there, right? With the acacia wood and it's wrapped in gold and all that stuff. So Steve, take us in there. Okay, so uh, when we enter in, this is the outer courts. This is what the outer courts. And we have a priest who's cutting up all this meat. So stop right there, Steve. The first thing, I, I, when you walk in, most likely a priest would be doing this. And the first thing you're going to see is you're going to see this gigantic gold square. This is in our text, okay? Gives you exactly how to make this thing. It's, uh, it's this altar of sacrifice. And we're not talking like a burger flipped on the grill. We're talking like whole bowls here, okay? Cut off a leg. The priests are just going wild, right? And so they cut off and they offer all the sacrifices on this. And this right here is where these sacrifices are being made to God. It's this big thing. Uh, and you'll see it. These, it says these horns on the side. In all the reading, it has these clasps here. Play it for a second, Steve, and then pause it again. Stop right there. Okay, you can see at the bottom left-hand corner and the top uh, corner of these things, that's where they would stick the poles in. Because remember, even though this thing's gold-plated, they had to have some strong beams to get this thing off the ground and move with it. This thing has to be travelable, right? So it has to, to be able to move. Go ahead, Steve, and play it. You'll see on each one of the corners, there's this blood. We get this in Exodus 25 through 31. You can pause it again, Steve. Um, you, as you, you see the, the blood there, that's, this is the part, if you read that in Exodus, this is where the, the blood would go and be put on the, the corners of this as a, a symbol that this itself has been consecrated. Go ahead and play it. So behind this altar of sacrifice, you can pause it there, uh, we have this called the laver. Uh, the laver is this spot that once a sacrifice was made, the priests, before they were ever in, able to enter into the holy place, they would have to wash their hands in a very specific way. And again, this is what we have in our text. They have to wash their hands in a specific way. We get this in uh, Exodus 28 and 29. Uh, just to be clear, if they didn't wash their hands exactly how God told them and a sacrifice wasn't made, they can try to go behind there and see that fabric, which we're going to go into in a second but they would die, okay? So they were pretty making sure their hands were clean, which you could tell your kids, like, well, the priest didn't wash their hands and they died, so. Okay, so, uh, okay, so go ahead and play it. So let's look at the tabernacle itself behind it. So uh, as we see this, you could, uh, I'm gonna have you pause it here in a second, Steve, right there, pause. Um, okay, so the first thing I want you to notice, completely gold-plated, remember that acacia wood? That acacia wood is creating these beams in front of it, and it's completely uh, plated in gold, Okay. Who knows how heavy this thing is, right? 800 men have to, to work on carrying it. How they got it around is, is a miracle in itself. But what you're going to find is these four different types of fabric are placed over the tabernacle. First two lay over it, and then two more are grabbed to the ground, tented and staked to the ground. So go ahead and play it. So there's these four different types of fabric, all of which you can read in Exodus 26 through 29, um, are placed over it. And then there's two sets of stakes that you can see. The first set goes on the inside. The second set goes on the outside. Pretty clear, okay? Okay? So there it is, so which makes it rainproof. So then you go inside. The first uh, uh, deal, you go in, pause it right there, Steve. So as you go in, this is the first thing that you're going to see. This is called the holy place. This is inside the tabernacle. A few things that I want you to see. Uh, we're not all the way in, all the way in, because there's another curtain we can go beyond. That's the most holy place. Again, uh, laid out in the text. You could go to the most holy place, which we will here in a little bit. But there's three things that are worth observing. First, you can play it, Steve, is what we call the menorah. It's the lampstand. It gives exact details on how to build this. The lampstand that has to be lit and rules and when, when it should be lit, all that. Then there's the shoe bread. The show bread is how it would be pronounced. As we see, you could pause it there, Steve. Uh, it would be this certain type of bread laid out. Um, 
Jesus actually interacts with this in his own ministry. But go ahead and play it. Um, and then we have, this is that part where I said, you can pause it right there, Steve, perfect. This is that altar of incense. This is the part where the priest would have to go in and make sure that incense is burning 24-7, never going out, want it to always be burning, uh, kind of symbolically. And, and, uh, and you can see, again, the clasps there that the poles would have to go where they would carry it through. So uh, go ahead and play it. So now eventually what we do is we want to make our way to the most holy place. So pause it before we go in. Um, the fabric is designed to lay out as you get, you can read in our text. There's these things called cherubim, these big angel like men figures that have these wings stretching over. We're going to see these, uh, cherubim over something else, this box. It's called the Ark of the covenant that we get to in a second. But before I want you to know something about this, there's a few things uh, I want to acknowledge. And this was in the temple as well. So this is the tabernacle. The temple is like the permanent version of the tabernacle. This veil is the type of veil that would have ripped when Jesus died on the cross. Okay? Now, I need you to understand the, the importance of this veil because um, there's all these like, misnomers even about this uh, veil, which seem impossible and I have found have no historical root whatsoever. So maybe you grew up in church and you were told that um, the person who goes into that holy of holy place, his name is the high priest, and he goes in once a year to offer a sacrifice for himself and for the people. He's called the high priest. This is this one big sacrifice. Okay, That's all true. But as we get into the priestly garments, which we'll get into in a second, there's these bells on the bottom of the priestly garments. And it was always said that they would tie a rope to the high priest as he would go in. And if those bells stopped moving, then they would pull him out because he died from the holiness. From what I have found, that's just not true. I have no historical precedent that I can found earliest 1400s is where that... I'll use myth, comes along. Uh, a few things on this. Um, Josephus even acknowledges this deal, this veil is not just one piece of fabric. When you read the details, it's interwoven pieces of fabric. So when you walk in, it takes a while and it's three feet thick. Okay. Josephus argues that two bowls could not pull back. It's too much. And the fabric is too heavy. Could not pull back these things. So nobody's just pulling a guy out as he's dead. Right. Okay. The reality is it would take a long time to get in there. It would be very intense. And this fabric is super weighty. It's heavy uh, to, to get through. So this is like a big deal. There's something beyond this veil that is, uh, is worth talking about. So let's go inside the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies is what we have the, uh, something called the Ark of the Covenant. You can pause it right there. Now, this is a big deal. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is something that is going to constantly be brought up in the Old Testament. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant has these cherubim again above the Ark of the Covenant. Super exciting stuff, you guys. This is all in Exodus, what we read. At least we have something to look at here instead of using our imagination. One of you guys would have just drawn like a triangle and be like, I think this is it. Um, anyway, sorry, I just had to say that. Okay, so, so what I want you to see is it's completely covered in gold, but there's three things inside the Ark of the Covenant uh, that are really important. They're all meant to have the people of Israel remember what, uh, what God has done, okay? So let's look at these three things. Go ahead and play it. So inside these three things, we're, inside this is three things. You can pause it right there. First one to the left, we, we read this text. Remember the manna? The manna, remember at one point he said, on the sixth day, gather twice as much manna, because the seventh day there's going to be no manna, but also, I want you to remember this. I want you to gather manna, I want you to put it in a jar, and he gives it to Aaron. Aaron ends up taking it, and he puts it in the Ark of the Covenant. The other one, which these stories will come to light with the, the plates as well, uh, Aaron's staff buds, it grows leaves, and so there's this moment, miraculous moment, that uh, uh, that takes place. And then this is what we're reading right now. Everything we're reading is being etched on stone by God, by the finger of God, and those plates, those commandments are being put inside the Ark of the Covenant. You could play it. So that's what's inside of the Ark of the Covenant, calling him to remember. Pause it. This is, uh, we're getting towards the end right here. Last 10 seconds. Above the Ark of the Covenant is what's called uh, the holy seat. Uh, the, uh, that's not right. Um, 
Mercy seat, thank you. It's called the mercy seat. The mercy seat, and this is ultimately where it's described that God is dwelling. This is where the sacrifice would be made uh, by that priest who comes in, this one offering. This is where it's, uh, it's placed. This is how this whole thing plays out. And it's this mercy seat, a very important, where the cherubim are, are going over. It's a very important place, um, ultimately, that the people of Israel see as like the pinnacle of kind of uh, uh, God's being there, that he chooses to participate in, uh, in the inhabitants of the, the people of Israel. So you can play it, and that kind of finishes us out with the rest of the video. Uh, again, we'll, we can maybe post this or share it, but that's it. So that's for the video. So because we have modern technology, I thought it would be good. That is two and a half chapters of what we just read. That is going through chapter 25, 26, 27 and a half. Okay. All those things. So leave that what it is. There's a few things I want to acknowledge on the material. Number one, I found this fascinating and it might be cheesy, but I found it fascinating. He tells uh, the people of Israel to use acacia wood. Acacia wood's really cool. It, um, it's kind of gnarly in its grain. It's not really easy to work with at all. It's kind of thorny and stubborn. It's not like a big oak tree, right? Where you could just slide it up. It's, it's more of like a bush like tree. Um, but the thing about it is it's super bitter. So no bugs would eat it. You don't have to worry about termites. It's, um, it's protected in the way that it's designed. It can't rot. It doesn't take any type of wood rot. And so what's cool about this whole deal is he takes that kind of wood, which is not easy to work with and he plates it in gold which is really cool. I think God in this moment is saying something, and maybe I'm over-spiritualizing the text, but it feels like God is saying, like, that's just like you, right? Like, you're hard to work with, thorny, but he plates these things in gold, and, and I use you in that way, which is so cool. Uh, the other thing is, all these symbols end up having reflections into the New Testament, i.e. gold being the first thing that Jesus has uh, given as a gift uh, in the manger, so all that stuff be, uh, can be played out in that way. So, with that, there's the Ark of the Covenant, Okay. But we got to keep moving. We still got lots to cover. From that place, we get the priests. Chapter 28 starts like this. I'm not going to read uh, this whole part of the text that's up there. I'm just going to read verse 1. It says this. Then, now that we've got the whole uh, tabernacle taken care of, then bring near to you Aaron and his brother and his sons with him for among you the people of Israel to serve me as priests. So stop right there. Now we've got a tabernacle. Now we need priests. And what you're going to find in all of chapter 28 is exactly what God wants the priests to do, wash their hands, exactly what he wants them to wear, put on these certain vests, exactly how he wants them to act, do this, exactly when at this point. So there's a very specific thing. So again, let's use some visual theology. I can't promise this one wasn't made by Mormons, but here's a picture uh, uh, of of what priests would have worn, I think detailed as I was uh, doing my best to study and read all through the commentaries. This is a a good image of what priests would have worn uh, when you hear ephod and things like that, or uh, it's, the, it's the, the thing that they're wearing over their undergarments. Uh, but the most important part that I want you to see when it comes to this whole deal, I wish I had a laser pointer, is at the center of kind of over their breast and abdomen is this breastplate. Now, this breastplate has 12 different stones in it. I'm not concerned about the stones, the name of the stones, the way they've been translated. That's not the big issue here. The bigger issue is the color of these stones. If you can remember uh, the way that this whole story of Israel started, God breaks up the people of Israel into 12 tribes. And each one of these tribes kind of took on a banner, this banner, this certain color. And these colors were exactly accurate to each tribe of the people of Israel. So this is important. The priests went on uh, to God on behalf of, of the tribes. They went to God on behalf of the people. If you're curious, that's how you can understand the difference between a a prophet and a priest in the Old Testament. Priests go to God on behalf of the people. 
Prophets go to the people on behalf of God. And so priests, they're, they're going to God, and they're representing. I'm representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And so all the details are there, exactly how uh, everything's laid out in chapter 28 that you can see all there, okay? So from there, what we have for the, the rest of all of that is we get to chapter 29 and chapter 30. And uh, from this point, I'll read just the first verse in chapter 29. Now this is what you shall do to them to, and here's the word, consecrate them. So God's like, he's doing his thing. We've got a tabernacle. That's where I'll dwell. We've got people and priests. That's exactly how I want them to act. But there's a problem. And it's, and, and it's a difficult problem for us in the 21st century in the Western world to get our mind around. There is a spiritual divide because God is really holy. Remember Moses tried to talk to him and he was in the bush? This ground's holy. Take off your shoes. Remember when he was on the mountain, thunder, lightning? God is too holy for the sin that is on this earth. And so what God does is to allow his people to get closer to him, we use this word consecrate. And I get it. It's hard to understand. So maybe the best way we can understand what's going on spiritually, let me try to explain it physically. Because we have a word that could, it falls short a little bit, but could be uh, helpful. We use a physical word for this when it comes to ways that we interact when it comes to sickness and disease. We use contaminated. Okay? When something is contaminated, uh, it is in such a way, like let's say somebody is super sick and they're contaminated with an illness, they have to be decontaminated. They have to be uh, separate from where we are, from the, the regular day-to-day of the rest of the society, and, and they have to be put aside until they're decontaminated so they can enter back into the regular day-to-day. Um, an example of this would be, Candace and I have a friend right now who's been battling cancer for about four years, and it's just brutal right? Uh, and part of the whole ca- battle with cancer is going through chemo. And, and chemo is just a monster. And, um, and what ends up happening with this whole process of chemo, essentially, they're pumping you full of poison. And that's honestly, they're, they're trying to kill this cancer, rightfully so, and they're trying to make it as doctors are doing the best they can to pinpoint exactly where the cancer is, but they're pumping you full of this radiation, this poison. And uh, our friend, he, uh, in, in this whole process, has been going over through it again and again and again. And what's crazy is there are certain rules for him because his body's been uh, uh, pumped full of poison that are different from his family. So when he goes to the bathroom, he has to flush the toilet twice. If he sweats too much or soils like any garment and he gets any kind of bodily fluid on on one of the fabrics, it has to be washed separately twice in hot water from the rest of the clothes, right? So there's all these separate rules because the reality is he's contaminated by this radiation, by this poison. And so, so going through this whole thing, this, again, though it might fall short, is the same idea. There are things to decontaminate spiritually the people of God so that, okay, cool, spiritually. And you might disagree with the way God wants to do it. That's, you're not God, so that, we'll just leave that what it is. But, but as he says, this is how I want you to be decontaminated, and he wants that he, the word here spiritually is to consecrate. I want you to, to, to be consecrated. And he lays it out for the, prof, or for the priests, and then he lays it out how it's supposed to happen for the people. Okay? Now, we're finally in the home stretch here. In chapter 31, at the end of chapter 31, it's mentioned the Sabbath, which we've talked about. Um, I will say this about the Sabbath that's interesting, is in Exodus, the Sabbath here, and then again at the end, which we'll cover again in seven chapters towards the end there, um, it's the only time where the punishment of breaking the Sabbath is brought up. It's the only time in all of the Bible, and it's, it's two ways. One, um, you'll be like marginalized from the community, separated from the community, and or killed. Okay, two and or killed. So there's heavy consequences for breaking the Sabbath, but uh, that is what it is. We'll cover that in in a few weeks. I do want to say this, though. This is, again, another side tangent that's randomly mentioned in this. Um, So we have consecration. We have of the prophets. We have of the people. We have the tabernacle and how it's built. Well, somebody's got to do this. 
The reality is these people have been in slavery for 400 years, putting bricks together. Does anybody know how to use wood? Does anybody know how to use gold? Does anybody know how to do this? Uh, What I find fascinating is, number one, everything that's being used was plundered from Egypt, which used to be used for pagan rituals, is now being used for the the people of God to serve uh, Jehovah. But more than that, I want you to read 31.1. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel. You can see that uh, in, in chapter 31, verse 2. Bezalel, son of Uri, I hope I'm getting these right, son of Hur and the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. Check this out, though. Watch the shift in verse 6. And behold, I have appointed with him... Ohalib, the son of Ahasamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given him, uh, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. Here's why I wanted to stop for this. And it may feel like, okay, well, what's that matter? I love that God says this in the moment. He did it with the priestly garments. If you go back to chapter 28, um, he says, I have given someone the spirit of God to think about, to dream, to design these things. He, like he, 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 there are certain people that he has given this creative ability to, to go, it should be like this. We should do it like this. We have some people who, as we get ready for Advent, what we want to communicate for Advent is we're working towards the birth of Christ. So you'll see the Sunday after Thanksgiving, there'll be little things on the stage. And the next Sunday, there'll be more things and more things until it's a buildup till Christmas Eve, right? We're not asking Sean to be creative on the stage. We're not asking him to do that, right? But we have people in our congregation who would do it far better than Sean ever could. Well, they think I probably would actually kill it. But um, so <laughs> all that to say is my point is this. And then there's this whole other group that you saw that goes, and he's given some the ability to build those things. Here's my point. I think interwoven in all of this tabernacle is this narrative of God reminding his people they need each other. Like, like I have given some the ability to do this. Some see things this way. You need each other, which I think is really, really cool. And then finally, at the end of 31, we get this. Uh, verse 18, and he gave, so it's done. The priest, all this stuff is all put on tablets. And, and he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So everything we just read and covered and overviewed, what we watched, how to make the tabernacle, the priestly garments, God ends up writing down in all of the law, putting it down in these tablets of stone. God puts it in stone, gives it to Moses, and now he's going to head back down the mountain. What we find is pretty awful from there, but we'll just leave it as it is. And that's it. Six chapters of priestly garments, the tabernacle, all of that. And so what do we do with this? So to finish our time... um, I said there's, you know, to start, there's two ways to understand the tabernacle, to look back, which we'll do in two weeks. But today, I want to look forward. And I get it. Um, like, I totally resonate with the fact that if you're just reading this text on your own, you're getting into all these details, it is absolutely normal for you to feel like you want to almost push away from the text. That's fair. Because you don't plan on building a mercy seat. That's totally fair. And so you're going, I don't know what to do with this. It seems pointless. Why do I need to know how to handle all this? So here's what I want to do. Let's zoom out then. Let, let's push ourselves away from the text, not actual the text, but let's zoom out from the text for a second. And let's just acknowledge what's going on in, in this, this moment. God loves his people and he wants to be around them. So much so that he's giving them 13 chapters in how to make this happen. A lot of details. But there's a problem with that. In God, in his holiness and creating all this, there's a recognition. This tabernacle, it can't be the permanent solution to the problem. 
It just can't be. Some of which, because God promised a permanent landing spot. And so even when they build the temple, that cannot be the permanent solution. There's got to be something else that's going to take place. Now, we as believers know this something else. It's Jesus, but we don't know why. So let me take us, just for 10 minutes to finish our time, let me take us through exactly how we're to understand the tabernacle as believers. Okay? So the first thing I want you to see is something really, really cool. I want to show you John chapter 1, verse 14. Now, if you've ever read the the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John starts the way that the book of Genesis starts. It starts with this idea of um, creation. And so uh, Genesis 1 is like, it's, it's void, God is hovering, the Spirit's hovering over the face of the deep. What we get in John 1, 1 is, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What John is doing is he's taking the creation story, and he's starting to put names to the, the who's, and he's starting to put how's, and he's starting to put where's, and he's starting to add some details to all this, till eventually we're told that this God becomes flesh. This is verse 14 of John chapter 1. Do you got that, Steve? No, you don't even have that? That's a brutal... Okay, that's okay. So I'm going to read it uh, for us. So John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he saw his glory, glory as uh, of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so you're going to have to open your Bible because we don't have it on the screen for you. I want you to look at this. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the first words say this, And the word became flesh. Now here's the next words. And dwelt among us. So the word becomes flesh. We were just told the word is God. Jesus, God, he becomes flesh. And here's the language. God dwells among us. Now, it's unfortunate that we wouldn't know this if we didn't know the original language. So I want to help guide us through this. This word, when you see dwelt among us here, is skeno. It's this Greek word skeno, and it only appears two other times in the New Testament. The definition of skeno is to dwell in, as it says, or to dwell in as a tent, or in camp, or I think a very fair uh, translation would be to take the word tabernacle and verb it. He, quite literally, what this, skeno, this word means is to tabernacle among us. Yes! Go ahead and write, go right, there's the punchline. And to tabernacle among us. All right, Steve, you're killing me today. Um, Okay, so you get the idea. Now, now here, here's, here's why I'm saying this. Jesus is the embodiment of how his people get to him. Do you see that? Jesus comes, he dwells among us. He is the complete tabernacle. As a matter of fact, if you have an NASB in chapter 7, you're going to notice that the same exact word is used when it says, and he tabernacled over them, or he put his tabernacle over them. It's the same exact Greek word. And the idea is that Jesus embodies the tabernacle. But, but let's take our biblical knowledge a step further, okay? Because Megan came up here and she read a text from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. And most of us went, I don't know what that means. So let's go back to Hebrews 9 and 10, and let's do something really cool. Let's find out how much ground we actually made today, okay? Open your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. This is what it says, okay? This is what Megan came up and read. That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. And the first room was a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. Look at me. We just learned this. Didn't we just learn it? Are you not right now picturing the visual theology, the video, right? This is, we, know what, we know what he's, the writer of Hebrews is talking about now. 
You walked in. There, there's the altar of incense. We saw the table with bread. We, we see the lampstand. We know exactly what he's talking about. Keep going, okay? Table, sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room is called the holy place. We know exactly what he's talking about. There was a curtain, and behind the curtain was a second room called the most holy place. You guys, this, we know what he's talking about. In that room, there were a gold, a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was uh, covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark was a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and a stone tablets of the covenant. You guys... We know what he's talking about. We just learned this. We just learned this from Exodus. We is smart, okay? We're doing it. Verse 5. Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. Check it out. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. That's okay. We know it. We don't need to talk about it in detail right now. We already know it. So oh, here's what I want you to do. Look at verse 6. Let's keep going. Let's be good Bible students here. When these things were in place, the priests regularly entered into the first room and they performed their religious duties. Yep, we talked about that. But only the high priest ever entered into the most holy place and only once a year. And he, is always, and he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. Okay, we know all this. Now I want you to look at the beginning of verse 9. This is our moneymaker. Look at the beginning of verse 9. This is an illustration pointing to the present time. Yeah, okay. So everything we've talked about, and, and, and seven more chapters on the tabernacle we'll talk about, what it says here in verse 9 is, all this has been an illustration. The way the blood was spread, the way the sacrifices were put, the way that the altar was put there, the way there's a holy place, the ark, this is all an illustration. We've been reading in Exodus in illustration. It's meant to, and it has been, pointing to something else. The writer of Hebrews tells us that something else. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offered are not able to cleanse the consciousness of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect until, uh, until a better system could be established. Verse 11. So Christ has now become the high priest over all good things that have come. So it's not about the high priest anymore. Those high priests once a year were meant to symbolize the great high priest who one day would come. Okay. But check this out. He, he, he's to come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands, is not part of the created world, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves. He entered into the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. So, so here it is. Listen, this is hard because a lot of us in this room by name are Christians, but functionally we're Old Testament Israelites. Because what we do is we mess up, we, we sit in our shame, we wait for the next sacrifice until we go through the cul-de-sac of, I'll never sin again, I messed up, okay, I'll never sin And we over and over and over again. That's Old Testament stuff. That's Old Testament stuff. Let me remind you, one sacrifice has been made once and for all. And you want to know how you describe? Skip down to verse 14. For by that one offering he made forever, forever, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Brothers, sisters, if you follow Jesus Christ right now, you are absolutely right. You are a mess most days. You cannot get it right most days, but not before God. If you think for a moment he sees you and not the cross, if you think for a moment that your sin is more powerful than the greatest priest to ever walk this earth, to break down the greatest temple to ever be on this earth, you think your sin is so far beyond that that you sit in shame, you're wrong. 
You are day by day being consecrated, sanctified, being made something he has already made you perfect. He's already made you perfect. Those old things were a shadow. Jesus is the true fulfillment. What the Israelites and Abraham and David and Joshua and Joseph, what they wanted, they longed for what we have. Angels look into this gospel to go, what kind of craziness is this? And yet we sulk over our sin. You are not so far gone. Your sin is not so far great that you go past the great Melchizedek high priest. He has come to save forever. One sacrifice, and I quote him in saying, it is finished. It's finished. And so there's a proper response to this. This would be our proper and our only response. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter into heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new, a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. We would have never been allowed access. You're right. That sin is there. It messed you up. But Jesus, what do you do with that curtain? What do you do with that three-foot? Bowls couldn't break it down. He tore it. Right now, there's no stance. There's nothing in between us. We can look directly at the Ark of the Covenant where God dwells. Jesus did all of this. Where God is, we have access to now. But he's not done. We can go boldly. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most uh, most holy place. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, you ready? Listen to these, let us. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciousness have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. Our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promises. Let us think of, our, of ways to motivate one another to act of love and good works. Verse 25. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So hear this. This is where we finish. So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised. Yes and amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's the last line there that resonates with my soul. It's just true of all of us. Right now, what we need is patient endurance. We feel like you're so far. We feel like our sins are taken over. We feel like we're slaves. We're still in bondage. We can't get it right. Jesus, we trust that you are the great high priest. We trust that all the rituals and laws that the people of Israel and the priests had to go through, they are found ultimately in you. And we believe in this story. We believe in this worldview. We believe in this narrative that you came to make one sacrifice, sacrificing yourself once and for all. And so we trust in you in faith. We trust at the end of days, we've got nothing else. We've, we've laid everything else aside. We're trusting Jesus. You're the right way. You're the right path. And we're scared and we tend to rely on ourselves at times. But Jesus, we trust it's you. You've done it. We believe that you've done it. So help us over and over remind us of that truth. Let, let us continue to look each other in the eye and, and point out the sin that shouldn't be there and encourage uh, one another when we need it. Let us continue to press each other on. Let us continue to gather together. Let us continue to remind us that we need patient endurance. God, you're so good. You're so good and we need you desperately. 
Be with us now. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.